want to um, dive back into scripture today. Today, please don't clap out loud, you might hurt my feelings, is the final message I'm going to preach on the book of Colossians. We've been in the book of Colossians for a long time. Oh, it hurts. It hurts. It hurts. Um, we've been in the book of Colossians for a long, long time, and we have finally made our way to the end today. I'm going to read the final paragraphs to Paul's letter, in Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. As we've said time and time again, this is a church that responded well to the gospel message, but now they need Paul's direction to begin growing up in the faith. We've moved very slowly through this letter. We've moved very purposely through this letter because I wanted to be very, very careful for us to glean everything we could from this message because I think that most of us who follow Jesus have at one point or another discovered the very same thing that the Colossians discovered. We've discovered that it's all well and good to receive the gospel with great joy and great enthusiasm, but it's something altogether different. More is needed to really grow into the new life, the new creation that Christ has made us to be. And so we've taken careful note of Paul's advice throughout the letter, but here we are at the end of the letter. The meat of the letter is over and done with. We applied our final point last Sunday. We're now to the closing. Paul's going to land the plane here. And the way he does so is, is so typical of the way Paul finishes his letters. There's 13 letters by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament of your Bible. And as they end, most of them follow a familiar pattern. They tend to have Paul giving us just a few quick notes on, on instructions, things that he would like the recipients of his letters to do next. He gives a few updates on his current situation. Here's what I've been doing. Here's what's going on. Sometimes he includes a few words on his upcoming plans. He usually has a handwritten greeting from himself. This is worth just a second of explanation. Paul wrote these letters, but Paul didn't really write these letters. Paul dictated these writers. As most people in the ancient world, he didn't write his own letters because writing was, was a skill that not everybody had in order to do it just the right way. Paul dictated his letters, but very often at the end of his letter, he would grab the stylus and he would say, I want to write out a greeting of my own. Sometimes he makes some self-deprecating remarks about his handwriting being bad, but he says, this is the way you know for sure it's from me. This is the authentication that this letter is not fake. I'm Paul and I approve this message is what he's saying. So he does that at the end of his letters. And, and about half of the time, in about half of the letters that Paul writes, he concludes with a list of greetings from some of his current companions or some specific greetings for individuals in the community that he's writing to. About half the time, we get a list of names. And that's what happens here at the end of the book of Colossians. As a matter of fact, despite being one of Paul's shorter letters, Colossians has one of the longer lists of names. Paul, we're going to hear him mention 10 different people that he references here in the conclusion of his letter. Do you remember, just nod because I'll feel better if you say yes. Do you remember all the way back in October when we studied the very opening verses of Colossians? 
We said what Paul was saying there to the Colossian church is the first thing I want you to recognize as you've come to faith in Christ and you likely feel alone and isolated in this very secular world that you live in. The first thing I want you to know is that you aren't alone. You are part of a great big tribe. That was the very first thing we heard Paul say way back at the beginning of the letter. Well, now it's time to actually get to know some of the tribe and Paul's going to call them out by name. So let me read to you from Colossians chapter four, beginning in verse seven. Uh, You need to pray for me right now because I got to pronounce all these names. Okay. (laughs) So I'm going to do what pastors do. I'm going to say it authoritatively and confidently and trust that nobody here knows the difference. You know, my kids will tell you, I was actually on YouTube last night doing how to pronounce on all of these names. And I can tell you that YouTube doesn't even agree. (coughs) So here we go. Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. Tychicus will give you a full report about how I am getting along. He's a beloved brother and a faithful helper who serves with me in the Lord's work. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we are doing and to encourage you. I am also sending Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one of your own people. He and Tychicus will tell you everything that's happening here. Aristarchus, who is in prison with me, sends you his greetings. So does Mark, Barnabas' cousin. As you were instructed before, make Mark welcome if he comes your way. Jesus, the one we call Justice, also sends his greetings. These are the only Jewish believers among my co-workers. They are working with me here for the kingdom of God. And what a comfort they have been. Epaphras, excuse me, Epaphras, a member of your own fellowship and a servant of Christ Jesus sends you his greetings. He he always prays earnestly for you, asking God to make you strong and perfect, fully confident that you are following the whole will of God. I can assure you that he prays hard for you and also for the believers in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved doctor, sends his greetings and so does Demas. Please give my greetings to our brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. After you've read this letter, pass it on to the church at Laodicea so they can read it too. And you should read the letter I sent to them. And say to Archippus, be sure to carry out the ministry that the Lord gave you. Here is my greeting in my own handwriting. Paul, remember my chains and may God's grace be with you. There it is. That's the end of the letter. Quite a group, huh? Quite a motley crew, you might say. Ten names in a row. And just to review, some of those folks are literally in prison with Paul. You might recall, we we identified much earlier on, Paul is in jail as he's writing this letter. And some of the people that he references in in that closing paragraph are in the cell right next to where he is. They're in the chains right down the hallway from where he is. Whatever his context is in prison, they're in jail with him. A few other people are are in the community where he is being in prison. They are in prison themselves, but they're waiting in the community. They're visiting Paul. They're seeing to his needs and they're waiting for him to be set free so that the mission can continue. And a few of the names are actually already in Colossae. Paul's either sent them ahead or, or some of them live 
in Colossae, and Paul just wants to make sure that the church there that's getting his letter makes a a particular point of reaching out to them specifically. So they're all over the place, but they're all part of the team. And Paul was a big believer in team. And throughout the entire letter, he's been telling the Colossians what it takes to really grow up in their faith and how appropriate then that he would finish the letter by introducing them to the team. This is really the one thing I have to say today. If you're looking at your note sheet, you're going, wow, this is going to be a short sermon. (laughs) One thing I have to say to you today is this. Growing up requires a whole team. It requires a whole team. We have the saying in the vernacular, it takes a village to raise a kid, right? Well, that's true in a spiritual context as well. Growing up requires a whole team. I was at the men's breakfast yesterday morning. Bob D'Onofrio organized. Jim Cahall cooked. That's always a good day when Jim Cahall's going to cook. Ash was here early cleaning up. I just came to eat. Hallelujah. I just came to eat. I came to the men's breakfast yesterday. There was a beanbag tournament. Marty Bullard, winner and still champion. Blood was spilled, as I said, would be. Um, But Bob shared with us uh, just kind of an article he read, and he had a couple of devotional thoughts. I thought, wow, that's good. I'm stealing that. I'm stealing that. And here's the thing. I didn't even ask him. I'm just stealing it. I'm just stealing it. Bob read for us this article that he had come across about a game reserve in South Africa, uh, actually two game reserves in South Africa. And in the first game reserve, the population of elephants was growing uh, and becoming too much for the game reserve. They were doing damage and, and I guess doing elephant things and they had too many elephants in game reserve number one. And so they came up with a plan to move some of the elephants to game reserve number two. And because of details that I won't get into, they they weren't able to move the largest elephants. So they rounded up some of the elephants that were medium and small sized. I I don't know if there are really small sized elephants, but they gathered the elephants that they could move. So mostly what they ended up gathering were female elephants, particularly the more dainty ones, um, and, and juvenile, juvenile males. And they moved them to the second game reserve. And and they thought, well, that'll be good. That'll be good. They'll grow and they'll develop and they'll do their thing. And some time after the move of elephants was complete, the rangers in game reserve number two started to notice that there were problems. Uh, What they noticed at first is they had an increase in dead rhinoceros. They were finding dead rhinoceros. And they soon discovered that young, unruly Juvenile male elephants were like going Lord of the Flies in the second game reserve, and they were just trampling and stampeding anything they could, including the rhinos, killing the rhinos, goring them to death, and moving on, because, you know, that's how we roll. And so they said, we got to do something about this. So they went back and they got some bigger, stronger equipment. They said, we need to get some of these adult, mature male bull elephants. And they successfully transported a few adult, male, mature bull elephants to game reserve number two. And within a matter of a few weeks, a few months, things settled down. Because it takes a whole team. Young elephants 
were not acting in a very elephantly way. They didn't know how to act like elephants without some examples in front of them. Here's the lesson. Maturity, maturity is fostered best in community. And if that's true of elephants, it's true of us. And if it's true that maturity is fostered best in community, then is it not also true that spiritual maturity is fostered best in spiritual community? Spiritual maturity is fostered best in spiritual community. You know, one of the most common mistakes that I see believers make in today's culture is that we sometimes presume that we can learn to follow Jesus on our own. Admittedly, there are a lot of things that we can do on our own. There's a lot of things that we should do on our own. We can read our Bibles on our own. We can listen to sermons on our own, especially in today's world where we can you know, log on to the internet and listen to any preacher we want on our own. We can read blogs on our own. We can research scripture on our own. We can study theology on our own. We can do all of those things. And as a result of our proclivity to do all of those things, on our own. Our language about our faith, I think, has changed in this day and age. We talk an awful lot about Jesus being our personal Savior. That's not wrong, but we put, I think, an undue emphasis on the word personal. We talk about having a personal, an individual relationship with Jesus. Sometimes I hear it often, it's not my favorite phrase, we hear people talk about Jesus wants to be my best Friend, okay, that's all okay, I guess, but if that's all we ever experience, we are missing out on the entire purpose that we were created for. I'm going to talk a a whole lot more about some of these themes in in the series of sermons that I have planned for after Easter. So I won't get too deep into these waters, but can I just toss this out to you right now? Do you realize that you were not created so that you would know about God? That's not why you were created. You were created so that you would look like God. The Bible says you bear his image. Listen to this. It does not say the particularly moral or holy ones among you bear his image. It says you, plural, bear his image. Your purpose in creation is to reflect that image. To reflect the image of God back upon the created order. And that is where team becomes essential. Because you can learn about Jesus on your own. But you cannot effectively become like Jesus on your own. Growing up requires a whole team. And so, in my opinion, we have far many, far too many people in this day and age wandering around the kingdom of God all by themselves thinking they've done it right. And some of them admittedly know a whole lot about Jesus, but none of them are living like Jesus. And if you think that's a little harsh, if, you, if you're thinking now, Dan, I, 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 can, I can hear where you're coming from, but you, you've gotten out over your skis a little bit here. You're kind of, you know, you know, lay off. If that's what you're thinking, 
dial it down a few here in a good principle, but you've, you've overplayed your hand. You've overstated it a titch. If that's what you're thinking, consider this. Let me offer you this. Jesus himself lived in spiritual community. Every day he lived in spiritual community. Now consider he's the only human being who never actually had to grow up spiritually. And yet he still chose to surround himself with a whole team. So I would suggest this. If you're not living in spiritual community, No matter what other victories you might think you're winning for the kingdom, if you're not living in spiritual community, you're already not living like Jesus. You already don't look like Jesus. And Paul understood that. Read through his letters, any one of the 13 letters, and you cannot escape the emphasis he puts on team. Team, team, team. So one final time, one final time, let's put ourselves in the place of the Colossians and let's meet the team. Now, most of the names that I just read are not terribly familiar. These aren't the great heroes of scripture that we all learn about in Sunday school for the most part. But most of them have enough other passing references here and there in the New Testament that we can kind of piece together a few important facts about them. And furthermore, and sometimes even a little bit more interestingly, the early church fathers, the tradition and the historians of those in the first century or two would refer to some of these characters and tell us where they ended up in their lives after the books of the Bible were all complete and written. So going back down the list, the first one we referenced was Tychicus in verse 7. Paul says, Tychicus will give you a full report about how I am getting along. Tychicus was one of Paul's most closely trusted partners. He appears in a number of Paul's writings. He was the letter carrier. He was the one who actually delivered the letter to the Colossians. And what that means most likely is not just dropping it in their mailbox and then moving on, but actually showing up, gathering the church, calling them, reading the letter out loud, and then being studied and prepared so that he could answer any of their questions and clarify anything that they didn't understand. Tychicus did this with the letter we just read to the Colossians. He also did it with the letter to the Ephesians, the book of Ephesians in the Bible. He also did it with the book of Philemon. So we know he was a guy that Paul trusted tremendously. They had met on Paul's third missionary journey. Later, Tychicus would serve as an interim pastor. When when Pastor Timothy had to leave the church in Ephesus, Paul said to Tychicus, why don't you go on and take over for a little while while we find a permanent relationship? He did the same thing when Pastor Titus had to leave the church in Crete. Tychicus came and served as an interim pastor. Early church tradition, the Bible doesn't say this, but early church historians said that Tychicus was among the 70 emissaries that Jesus himself sent out to proclaim the Bible. That would mean that Tychicus already, by the time he and Paul are friends, already has a long history of faith. He's a wise man. He's an experienced worker. He's trustworthy. He's valuable to the mission of the early church. Second name that Paul references is Onesimus. Verse 9 says, I am also sending Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother. One of your own people. We talked about Onesimus a couple weeks ago when Paul made his references to slavery. Onesimus was an escaped slave 
of Philemon, a man from the Colossian church. Onesimus had run away, had found Paul, met Paul. Paul led Onesimus to the Lord. And then, somewhat to our modern surprise, Paul tells Onesimus, what you need to do is go back and find your master. Go back to the place you ran away from. Go back and find Philemon. As a matter of fact, I'm writing a letter to Colossae. I'm writing a letter specifically to Philemon. I'm going to give it to Tychicus to deliver, and you can just travel with him and go with him when he goes back. So that's how Onesimus, somewhat sheepishly, I might assume, ends up back in Colossae. Paul says, I'm sending uh, Onesimus, who is now a faithful and beloved brother, one of your people. So he gives Onesimus the instructions to return, but he also instructs Philemon. He says, guess what? Onesimus is coming back, and I want you to welcome him, not as an escaped slave, but as a brother in the Lord. You treat him like a brother in the Lord from now on. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how that reception played out. But history tells us that about 20 years later, there was a new bishop in the nearby city of Ephesus. Anybody want to guess what his name was? Onesimus. And we can't say for certain that it was the same Onesimus, but guys a lot smarter than me are pretty sure it was the same guy. 20 years later, this escaped slave appears as the leader of the church in a major regional city. And one of his great contributions to the church, Bishop Onesimus, was that he was one of the first guys to begin to save gather and collate the letters of the Apostle Paul that had been circulating around the early church. He was the guy who said, you know what? I got a hunch that about 2,000 years from now, there's going to be a group of people in Downers Grove that might want to read some of this stuff. And so maybe we ought to preserve it and catalog it. And so, of course, he had the large letters that Paul had written to the big churches. He had Corinthians and he had Romans and he had Ephesians. He had all of those But he also happened to have in his personal possession a much shorter letter that Paul just wrote to an individual 20 years earlier, Philemon. And so that teeny tiny postcard of a letter appears in our Bible because a guy named Onesimus knew how important that letter was in his life. And he had hung on to it all of those years. Aristarchus is mentioned. Verse 10 says, Aristarchus, who is in prison with me, Sends you his greeting. If, if you follow Aristarchus' story, you can't help but feel bad for this dude. Aristarchus had joined up with Paul on the European leg of his mission trip earlier on. And he had followed Paul all the way back to Asia. And in the city of Ephesus, when they arrived, the people in Ephesus rioted. They wanted to kill Paul in an act of mob violence. One problem, they couldn't find him. So they grabbed Aristarchus. They were like, we saw him with him. Let's just take him. Let's just get, you know, grab him and bring him, throw him to the mob. Aristarchus is like, I just got here. I don't know what's going on. I just got here. Aristarchus' life is spared, but he ends up in jail with Paul. How's that for a beginning to ministry? Keith and Delson, can I ask you, at any point in your first uh, mission trip, were you in prison? Did a mob try to kill you? Okay, well, you're not like Aristarchus then. Yeah, we're going to pray for you. He narrowly escapes with his life, but he finds himself now alongside Paul in prison. The Bible says that later on in Paul's life, when Paul had to sail back to Rome, Aristarchus sailed with him. You might remember that trip. It was when Paul got shipwrecked. This is a guy who was with him through thick 
in thin. The historians of the early church say Aristarchus ultimately became uh, a leader of the church in Syria and ultimately was, was hunted down by Emperor Nero and executed for his faith. Paul references Mark. He says, Mark sends you greetings. As you were instructed before, make Mark welcome if he comes your way. Mark had accompanied Paul very early in Paul's ministry on a few of his early assignments, including Paul's very first big missionary journey. But Mark abandoned him halfway through that missionary trip for reasons the Bible never really gets into. We don't know why that happened. We do know, we do know that Paul wasn't happy with Mark. <laughs> he didn't like that it happened. But apparently... The relationship was mended. We're a little bit surprised to find Mark back with the team here in this letter to the Colossians. Mark has mended the relationship. The relationship is mended. Mark is recommitted to the team. As a matter of fact, later on in Paul's life, as he's on his deathbed and writing to one of his apprentices, Timothy, he writes about how valuable Mark has been to him. He writes about how important Mark is to the mission. Mark would ultimately go on to do a lot of studying with the Apostle Peter, and very likely it was using Peter's notes that Mark would become the very first person to write an account of the life of Jesus. It's in your Bible. It's the Gospel of Mark. Then there's this Jesus Justice. Jesus was a common name in the first century, but a lot of followers of Christ who were named Jesus for obvious reasons would, would, would change their name when, when they came to the Lord. So Jesus, the one we call Justice, also sends his greetings. And he refers to Jesus Justice, Paul does, as one of a handful of the people that are with him that are, just like Paul, Jewish by heritage. And he says, I, it's just nice to have some people with me that understand me. What a comfort they have been. Can I tell you, we know nothing else about Jesus' justice. He's the one guy on this list that there's really no other biblical reference to him. There's no significant historical reference to him. He's kind of just a guy. And I like that about him. I like that the Holy Spirit shows it important enough to say, you know, on the team, you need some people who are just a guy, just a lady. Just somebody who makes you feel welcome, who makes you feel at home. And are there stories going to be told in history books for centuries and millennia? No, but we need some folks like that on the team. I like Jesus justice. I'm feeling him. Epaphras, verse 12 says, Epaphras is a member of your own fellowship. And he sends you his greetings. He's with me now, but he's from your hometown. He always prays earnestly for you. Epaphras, we talked about way back at the beginning of our, our, our study of the book of Colossians. Epaphras was the guy who had originally brought the gospel to Colossae. He had become a Christian following Paul, but he went to his hometown and said, I'm going to preach there. He brought the gospel to Colossae. He was the whole reason they knew about Jesus. And even though he's now moved on and is doing ministry elsewhere, man, he's got a burden for his home church, doesn't he? Paul says, he, he just, I can tell you this. Dude never stops praying for you. He never stops. Every time we have a prayer meeting and we finish and say, does anybody have a prayer request? Epaphras is like, can we pray for the Colossians? They're just always, he's, you're always on his heart. You know who Epaphras reminds me of for HRCC? I read his story and I think, man, that's, that's Pastor Joe. I've been your pastor for 10 years, but before me, Pastor Joe West was pastor here for 38 years. How many of you sat under Pastor Joe's ministry? He's the reason this church survived. 
He's the reason that we still meet here. And he's moved on to ministry elsewhere. But every time I talk to Pastor Joe, every time I connect with him, he's like, man, I'm, I'm just praying for HRCC. And I'm just, I'm like, how's everybody doing? How's everybody doing? I probably don't even know half the people there. I'm like, no, you don't. But he loves you. He's praying for you. Apophis reminds me of Pastor Joe. Verse 14 references Luke, the beloved doctor. Paul says he sends his greetings. Now, Luke probably didn't know the Colossians, but it's possible, it's likely even, that they've already heard about Luke because, like many of them, he's a Gentile believer and he's been a close partner of Paul's for a long, long time. You know, Luke, of course, would go on to write the Gospel of Luke and he would write the Book of Acts. And those are two long, long books. I mentioned that that Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. Luke only wrote two of the books in the New Testament. But those two books are longer than Paul's 13 letters combined. In other words, Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other individual. But here he is, most likely not having begun that project yet, just working with Paul, taking care of him. And he says, oh, you're writing to the Colossians? Tell him I said hi. Let him know I'm part of the team. I'm praying for him. So Luke says hi in verse 14 says, and so does Demas. Demas is mentioned a few times in scripture as a companion of Paul's. We know he went with him on some of the missionary journeys and he worked with him. But later on, and this is what Demas is best known for, later on we find out that Demas actually would desert the team. Paul would write later on that Demas just loved the world too much and so he gave up on the mission. Now we don't know from the Bible what exactly happened. But historians have speculated that Demas probably, you know, it just got a little too hot in kingdom ministry. And Demas probably made his way back to his hometown, somewhere near Thessalonica. Ancient historians will tell us that there was a pretty powerful, politically connected family in Thessalonica that had the same name as Demas. Maybe he just went home where things were more comfortable. He didn't end up well from a kingdom sense. But in this moment, at this time, when this letter's written, Paul's included, he's part of the team. And he's saying, Demas sends you his greetings. We're almost to the end of the list. Verse 15, please give my greetings to Nympha and to the church that meets in her house. This lady, Nympha, she was, she was the host. And we can speculate then, we can surmise then that what that most likely means is she was also one of the primary teachers of one of the house churches. Remember the church in Colossae didn't come together in a big building like we do. They would have gathered from time to time corporately, but most of their ministry would take place in what we would call small group ministry. They would meet in, in homes throughout the community in smaller groups. And Nympha was the, the host and the teacher of, of one of these groups. And for whatever reason, Paul is particularly uh, aware of her and the group that meets in her house, uh, there were therefore a group of Colossian Christians who were part of the assembly, but they specifically were part of, part of Nympha's group, right? And they would meet regularly just to, to fellowship with her and to learn from her. You know who Nympha reminds me of in, in HRCC context? She reminds me of Pastor Marianne, right? It's like part of the congregation, right? But there's a whole group that just meets with her, just learns from her, is ministered to by her. She's part of the team. That's Nympha. And the last name on the list, glory, hallelujah, Archippus. 
Kind of one of the more mysterious greetings that we read. Verse 17, now Archippus isn't with Paul. Archippus is in Colossae. So Paul gives instruction here. He says, you know, you Colossians, say this to Archippus. Tell Archippus to be sure to carry out the ministry that the Lord gave you. Now, we don't know what that ministry is. There's no other clues in Scripture. We don't know what that was about. But apparently, Archippus was at a point in his life where he needed a word of encouragement. It would seem, we can speculate, that Paul was aware that Archippus was starting to struggle, starting to wonder, am I going to be able to do it? Can I continue in this life? There are some clues in the rest of Scripture that Archippus was likely part of Philemon's family. Remember Philemon? So your dad is one of the leaders in the church, but he's got a little egg on his face this morning because we sent back one of his escaped slaves and we're kind of upending the way human value in life works in front of the entire community, by the way. And then just at the very end, you got to speak out to your son. Archippus, can you hear me? Don't give up, dude. Don't give up. Keep working. Keep working. Keep at it. History would say that whatever that ministry was, it seems that Archippus did continue in it. Early historians tell us that he ultimately became the pastor of the church in nearby Laodicea. And like so many others in that generation, he was ultimately executed for his faith. The ancients record that he was stoned to death alongside his father, Philemon. That's the team. I want to challenge you just in your mind's eye to just picture them, but don't picture them how they ended up. We talked a lot about where they ended up. Just picture them just in this moment, in this singular moment. Now, they aren't all in the same room at the same time. They're in different places. Some of them are in jail with with Paul. Some of them are in the community where he is. Some of them are in Colossae, but they're all part of the team. Can you picture them just in that moment? Some of them already have great accomplishments under their belts. All of them have plenty more in front of them that they, they don't know about. Now, we think we know. We've, we've got to speculate and fill in some of the blanks, but we can make some very, very educated guesses about the, what the future would ultimately hold for each of them. But in that moment, none of them knew that. None of them could say for sure what was next. In that moment, all that mattered was they were part of the team. And it takes a whole team. I want to invite you to do something as we close. Just take a look around the room. Take a look around the room. For better, for worse. This is our team. This is our team. The staff will tell you that sometimes during the week when, when something comes up, a problem presents itself, circumstances just get, they have a way of getting goofy sometimes. One of my favorite phrases, I'll say, well... That's my church. That's my church. This is our team. Where are we in that picture? Who knows what our individual futures might hold? I think what I'm hearing in the closing words from the letter to the Colossians is that ultimately, that question doesn't even really matter. It's not particularly relevant to what God is doing in our midst right now.
What is important for right now is that God has put us together. He has collected us from from various backgrounds, with various abilities, with a wide range of personalities and strengths and weaknesses. And he has put us together so that each one of us will have an opportunity to grow up in our faith. I grow because the team I'm on reflects to me the image of Jesus. Now in our fallenness, our tendency sometimes, I mean, maybe not here, but at other churches, our tendency is to look around and kind of wrinkle our noses a little bit and go, I'm not so sure I want to be part of this team. Our tendency sometimes can be to come up with reasons why some of the team members don't fit. We say things like, well, he's from a different background, and so he's never going to understand who I am. We say things like, she's too young in the faith to actually help me. We say things like, well, I heard so-and-so failed at his last ministry assignment. I'm not so sure I want to work with him. Or we say, I don't think she's even going to ultimately stick it out. I see some red flags. I don't think it's going to work. But I believe the Spirit of God calls us to put those concerns down. Because even with all of our faults, even with all of our failures, even with all of our liabilities, we all need we all. Do you hear that? We all need we all. That's how teams work. If we want to grow up to look like Jesus, we need all sorts of people on board. We need people that we can look up to with appreciation. That, that was Tychicus, right? That was Epaphras. That was Nympha. People that, that we could just look up to and say, that's what kingdom work looks like. We need people who might be young now, but they're going to go on to do great things in the kingdom. We don't know it. We can't foresee it from our perspective. But someday the stories will be told of the great things they did for the kingdom. We need Onesimus in our midst. We need Luke in our midst. We need people that we can encourage and pour into and influence like Archippus, we need people who will stay by our side during difficult times and maybe their, their contributions to the kingdom won't be the kind of things that you'll find in history books, but they're part of the team because we need them. We need Aristarchus. We need Jesus' justice. We need people who didn't start out so well. But maybe, just maybe, by the Spirit of God, this is the moment when they're going to come into their own. We need young John Mark with us on the team. And this is maybe the hardest one, but I think this is what God is saying to us. We even need to ultimately take the risk to accept some people who aren't going to work out. We need Demas. He's part of the team. And it takes a whole team. On this Palm Sunday, where traditionally the church goes back and remembers the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and we like to shout Hosanna, and we we talk about Jesus, we emphasize the kingship of Jesus. 
Can I remind you on this Palm Sunday that you cannot call Jesus your king unless you're willing to be part of the kingdom? We need the whole team. So in closing today, let's just take time to give thanks to God for the team that he is using to help us grow up in our faith as he shapes us into the very image of Jesus. Father, thank you for this team. Thank you for this team. I thank you that in this moment, literally in this room, I can see the faces of saints that have poured into my life. I can see people, Lord, that are an encouragement to me by way of their example. I can see individuals that I value, Lord, because you have used them powerfully in my life. And God, I believe that's the same for every person here. I thank you, Lord, that on this team are people that don't look like me. On this team are people whose stories in life and whose stories in faith don't line up particularly well with my own. They are a reminder to me, God, that I do not have the gospel cornered. But the kingdom's bigger than I could ever imagine. Thank you for my teammates today. Thank you, Lord, that you are using us together to reflect your image. It's by the work that we do together in the power of the Holy Spirit that we are shaped and formed to be the creatures you said we should be. And so, Lord, I thank you that my brokenness is being addressed because I'm part of the team. Father, I pray an anointing over the team members in this room today whose future in the kingdom of God is yet unwritten. Lord, I pray that in this room, right now, your spirit would call in the ministry. I pray, Lord, that you would look down and find in this collection of people those who you are calling and preparing to specific assignments. Some, Lord, that the world will tell stories of. And some, perhaps like Jesus' justice, that the world won't necessarily notice, but eternity is going to be different because of the anointing of your spirit on your people. Thank you for seeing from your perspective what none of us can from ours. And I pray, Lord, that you would give each of us the ability to set aside our own prejudices, our own thoughts, our own ideas, and recognize that we are but part of a great big team. Thank you for all these things in the strong and sufficient name of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.